you will grab a Bible, I've got to share something very countercultural. Thank you, Stephen. Very countercultural. So I've been uh, listening to a number. Of, I like a lot, lot of podcasts. I'm a big podcast listener. Uh, and, and this church was talking about a countercultural movement that they're starting. Ready for this? This is crazy. I know it's on the edge of society and life. But they suggested in churches we should be bringing Bibles. Right? I mean, isn't that now an actual Bible, like not one that's just on your phone? Because what that does, and hear me on this, and I think that's kind of interesting. We use so much that's just digital technology that that in some way becomes an idol in our culture, meaning it drives the rhythms of life. There are certain things in life, and your phone, technology, they kind of push us down rhythms. And one of the things they suggested is just not using the phone. It's okay if you got one today, you're going to use that. You're loved, and this is grace. But anyways, um, we're going to jump into Philippians 4. And if you don't have a Bible and you don't have an ESV Bible, which is what we read, it's not better, it's just different. Uh, It's in front of you. You can grab that Bible, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 10. So consider that crazy idea of actually bringing a Bible each week. And I think in part just simply because we don't get into it enough I mean, I'm still kind of old school when it comes to books. I have to buy a book that you can turn the page. I'm still in that generation. You know, it's weird. I like to write in it, and then I like to go back and look at it. So I know I'm kind of crazy on that end. But anyways, let's, let's encourage each other to do that. Uh, Philippians chapter, General Electric Power Company. That's how you find it. I was just doing that, right? General, so Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So anyways... If you find one of those four, that's how you do it. General Electric Power Company, Philippians. I still have to do that, guys, and I should know this Bible pretty well. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I think it's like 982 or something in that Bible. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of facing abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the words of James who says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. Father, you chose to give us birth through the word of truth. It is a gift of life to us. So I'd ask, Father, in Jesus' name, as we study this passage that is countercultural, that takes us in a direction that pushes against the wave and the movement of our culture. And Father, I think in some ways my words are very inadequate to even explain the depth of struggle we have with contentment and discontentment. And so, Lord, through the power of the Spirit, would you illuminate what needs to be illuminated and everything else, Lord, that's not necessary, would you set aside? Guide us into all truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to be honest. I'm always... Oh, I'm try to be honest every week, but I'm going to be honest today. As I studied this passage, I want you to know I'm an absolute hypocrite. 
Now, I'm, I'm assuming I'm speaking in grace to fellow hypocrites, but in terms of contentment, I am a very discontented person. Now, let me share with you why. Some of those personality tests, you ever taste that disprofile? You know, now it's uh, the Enneagram, you've done that. I, I finally did the Enneagram, jumped in with two feet. It's just a, yeah, anyway. Um, anyways, I took that, and I am a developer or an achiever, which means I'm never happy with what is. It can always be better. So my base personality that God created in me is to refine and perfect everything. So I never, when I go to Kenya, sometimes I go to Kenya, we do some water wells and train pastors. Uh, I love that they celebrate. And they celebrate all the time. Like to the degree I don't celebrate, they celebrate. I feel like they're making up for my lack of celebration. And in that culture, they're celebrating what God does. They take moments to to really thank one another and be in community and in song and sing songs together, dance around. I love that. But in our culture, we are a kind of culture that wants to be productive. We want to accomplish things. And we live in a culture that's constantly telling us what we don't have. And telling us what we don't have in a way to say, hey, you're not significant enough, whether it's materially, physically. In every aspect of life, we live in a culture that swims in discontentment. If our culture became content, the American economy would die. Because the nature of the American economy is to buy what you really don't need. And to convince us that you really need it. And the fact that you now have it says something about who you are. And so the culture we're in, when we jump into this passage, I think there's a veil of difficulty over our eyes to understand what contentment is. Because often our contentment, our concept of contentment is not contentment in God... It's just simply I have what I need. Now, that may not be your story and your entire story through the history of life. Many of you have probably gone through challenges and trials and difficulties, but we live in a community. I think we can be honest, and we live in an area, and we live in a culture that has a lot. I think if you make 70,000 or more, you're in the top 1% in the entire world. And I think 35,000 is in the top five or 2%. So we're doing pretty well. So as we jump into this passage, what Paul describes in terms of contentment, he's going to describe it in a way that doesn't make sense to us. I, I really think that's true. So let's jump back into the text and discover what this is. Pick it up in verse 10. And he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now let me explain. Paul is in Rome and he's in prison. He's in prison because when he showed up at Philippi, he said a very anti-Roman thing. Jesus is Lord. Because see, in the day, what you would say is, we greet each other, Caesar is Lord. Well, if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not, and that's why Paul got arrested. He was pushing against the culture of his day, and he was saying, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so Paul was arrested. He was taken from Philippi all the way to Rome. And he was now chained to a Roman guard 24-7, no privacy. Now, the challenge in a Roman prison is you didn't have meal time, you didn't have rec time, you didn't have TV time, none of that. If you were going to be fed, someone had to feed you, and it wasn't going to be the Romans. So you had to have family and friends bring clothes, bring food, medicine, all of that kind of stuff. Well, Paul is in Rome. He doesn't have family. So what happens is the Philippians begin to collect resources for Paul. 
And they sent this guy, Epaphroditus, which means son of Aphrodite, who came to faith in Christ. So that's kind of cool, Greek guy. And he takes this gift along with resources. I imagine a change of clothes, because Paul probably had a change of clothes in two, three months. And he brings them to this prison and gives Paul these resources. And so when he says he rejoices, he's saying, I'm celebrating in the Lord that at last your concern for me has been renewed. Now he says, you haven't had an opportunity to show it. Hasn't had an opportunity because 800 miles separate these two. There's no digital technology, no Western Union, none of that stuff. You've got to travel by horse, donkey, walk to bring those resources. And so finally these resources have come. And he says in verse 10, Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Actually, back up, beginning, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern. Now that word revive in the Greek means springtime has come. Paul has lived in a time, and if you've ever been there and felt absolutely alone, he was in the dead of winter. And when Epaphroditus showed up, and maybe this has happened to you, you got a knock on the door, you got a text, you had no idea that anyone knew that you were struggling. You had no idea that anyone knew the hardships you were going through. You thought that the person that you had lost, everybody else had forgotten them. Five years later, somebody texts you, somebody calls you. They're standing in their grief with you. Well, Paul says, I have been revived, which means springtime has come. That their generosity and their kindness brought life to Paul. And in many ways, that should be the church. Unfortunately, we take a lot of people into winter. We, we don't often bring people back into spring. You know what I mean? Sometimes the way that the church operates is more in wintertime than to abound in spring. And Paul says, your generosity, your kindness, your love, it brought life back into my life. Now, watch this, verse 10. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. And stop right there. Remember, Paul's in prison. He has no food, so he's starving. He's got one set of clothes. He's probably got dysentery. He's probably sick. He's probably got lice, all that good stuff that happens in damp prison cells that are dark. He probably hasn't seen the sun for months and months. And so Paul's in a very bad condition. But notice, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. If anybody's in need, it's Paul. Because I know in my life, there are things that I need. And all the things that Paul says, all the things that I think I need, Paul says, I don't need, because the word need is essential for life. So food, clothing, so we're taking this on a whole different level of contentment. Now, we're going to explain this, because this seems a little psychotic. I mean, just to be honest, I don't need food, I don't need water. Now, I'm glad that you brought those gifts to me. Don't, don't get me wrong, Paul doesn't want to die in prison. But he has a level of contentment in God that goes beyond anything I could imagine. A level of contentment in God and what God is for him, that God is sufficient, God is enough, God is satisfying, that even though he did not have these earthly things that were a necessity to us, he says, in that moment that the gift showed up, I came to life, I was overjoyed, I was happy, it meant I was going to live, but understand, I wasn't in need. Now, we need to explain that, so jump back in at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have, and here's the key word, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now we're going to discover in verse 12 what those conditions are, that Paul has learned contentment, but contentment, the first idea is it's something we have to learn. Contentment doesn't just come to you. If you have said to yourself, you know, I'm single, I'm not content. If you're not content single, let me share some news. You won't be content married. I don't know if you realize this, marriage comes with some problems. 
If you're not content working, you will not, hear me, be content retired. Contentment is not a destination. It's not a city you arrive at. It is a mode of transportation. Hear me on this. In whatever situation you're in, if you do not learn in that moment, and maybe that moment's come into your life to teach you contentment. Because we're in a culture that says, you know, if, when. When this happens, then I'll be happy. And I operate that. My, you can hear it in my words. I'll say, you know, if this happens or that happens, then finally I'm going to be content. That's not where Paul is saying, no, des- uh, contentment's not a destination. It's a mode of travel. It's more like an airplane. It's more like a car. As we go through the challenges of life, each new challenge is an opportunity to find that Christ is sufficient. So he's sufficient in abundance. He is sufficient in need. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content, which means contentment is hard work. It's not easy. Now, what I want to do, if you take a left with me, if you go to the book of Corinthians, second, one of my favorite books. Guys, if you've never read Second Corinthians, can I just tell you, this is like Lord of the Rings stuff. It's good, meaning I like the Lord of the Rings, if you don't know me. Anyways, have you ever told somebody about a movie you love and you find out they hadn't seen it? Doesn't that get you excited for them? What I'm saying is I'm excited for you to read 2 Corinthians. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Listen to some of the scenarios that Paul experienced in which he learned. This was his training ground. This was his playground. This was his university, his college, in which contentment came into his life. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now, Jesus received that once. And he was almost to the point of death. Paul says five times, 39 lashes. He goes on. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times. I can't imagine this is possible. Three times I was shipwrecked. Do not travel with Paul. A night and a day. I mean, isn't that crazy? Three times? Really, Paul? That seems excessive. Uh, On frequent, verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people. In danger from Gentiles, so that's Thanksgiving right there, in danger from my own people. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily, get this, pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He loves his children. As he's going through hardship, he's worried about someone else. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? This was Paul's university to contentment. Now, it's not the greatest thing that he faced. We're going to discover there's something greater than being hungry. There's something greater than shipwrecked and a night and a day at sea. We're going to discover what that is. But jump now to chapter 12, and we're going to see how this ends. So he talks about all these challenges he went through. And in chapter 10, verse 9, it says, But he said, meaning God said to me, chapter 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So the power of Christ may dwell in me, in my weakness. And weakness means physical difficulties, challenges, conflicts. It's not talking about in my sin, but in my weaknesses, in my hardships in in life, in the things that I want and I didn't get. God's power became real to such an extent. Watch this, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. 
In my weakness, the place I learned contentment was in weakness. I was content. And notice what he's content in. I'm content in weakness. I'm content in insults. Anyone here? You love it to get a good insult, don't you? You know, somebody just come up to you and say, you, anything. Right. He said, in, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in calamities, this is my playground for contentment. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Jesus said it, blessed are the poor. In spirit. When you see somebody in abject poverty, you have to realize you're simply looking at your spiritual state before God. I know. When you see someone, and I'm not talking about American poverty, I'm talking about poverty to the extent that there are no resources, there's no one coming in to help you. Someone that's out in Sudan, Ethiopia, someone that's in an area where there are very, very few resources, no one can swoop in and help you. That is our spiritual condition before God. God. And Paul said, you know what all these hardships did? They allowed God's power to work through me in a way that I never imagined was possible. See, here's what we do. Ready for this? When weakness shows up, I find me some comfort. And I skip out on the experiencing of having contentment with God. See, when discomfort comes, check yourself. Our concept of contentment is find something, consume something, buy something, experience something. Paul said, and it doesn't mean that we can't do those things, but when we turn to them first, it sets a rhythm in your life that is very hard to break. There, is this, there are rhythms in your life right now because you experience discontentment and you go to something to be satisfied, and that is called worship. When you turn, when you feel that weakness, and you go to, and I don't know what it is for you. Sometimes it can be shopping. It can be, hey, it can be as bad as alcohol, drugs, pornography, stuff that truly does addict you. But it also can be, you know, just getting on a bike and taking a bike ride. None of these are bad things. Pornography is bad in and of itself, right? It's not bad in and of itself. But when it comes your source of solving the difficulties in life, it becomes a God. And it will not produce contentment in your life. Actually, it'll produce discontentment, meaning you'll get angry at people because they're keeping it from you. Anyone get angry because you can't go take a bike ride, can't take a run, can't go shopping? No, none of us do that, right? That's worship. How often you get angry that you can't spend time in God's presence. And yet the impact of being with God, the contentment that Paul says... In my weakness, his power showed up. We wonder why the church is so powerless. It's not because of the leaders. It's because of us. We're not satisfied with our God. Hear me on this, church. Listen, the reason the church is weak is we are not satisfied with God. We have not even tasted and seen to the depth that Paul has that the Lord is good. And Paul tasted to such a depth, I think he went way beyond me, just to be way on. I mean, you guys already know that. He went way beyond, and yet he was greedy for more. Paul was hungry. Contentment is something we have to learn. It's something we have to learn. And again, we're swimming in a pool of discontent. The air we breathe is discontent. We don't even see it. I want to show you a clip, if you guys are ready for that. And it's humorous. Listen, it's humorous. But honestly, the the lesson that comes out of this and the honesty that comes out of this, I think it gets past a little bit of the water we swim in and gets down to the truth. Watch this. How often does humor draw out what is real? Now, as we kind of wrap this into what is the secret, we talked about, first of all, contentment is learned. And I I think we kind of touched on contentment is not based in circumstances. It's as much a challenge in plenty and in want. What is the secret? I want to jump just quickly to Proverbs chapter 30. 
in the book of Proverbs and written by Solomon. Solomon was a wealthy man. And so understand, wealth is not the problem. It's the human heart and it's love for what we have and what it says about us that's the problem. Never does it say in Scripture that wealth is evil. It says the love of money and the love of what you think it says about you and who you are, that is the root of all kinds of evil. And so in the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, a very wealthy man, he had this unique prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Listen to these words, Proverbs 30, verse 7. He says two things. There's only two things I need. Deny them not to me before I die. Here's the first. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Here's the second. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Anyone courageous enough to pray that? Hey, I agree with the first part. And even part 2A Because the first part is, God, hey, keep me from deceitful lips. Keep me from falsehood. I can agree with that. And then he says, and I'm totally with you on this, Solomon, keep me from poverty. But notice he doesn't stop there. He says, rather, keep me also from abundance. See, when you jump back in the book of Philippians, you notice what Paul addresses first. In verse 12, when he's talking about the experiences, I'm actually in Corinthians, so I'm not going to find it there. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul describes the challenges he went through this way. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to bound. In every, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret, notice, of facing plenty. See, it wasn't just simply in his lack of, of having his needs met, but rather it was in plenty that Paul had to learn the secret of being content. You see, there's something about us In in the sense, the way we approach wealth, I think to myself, God, I am trustworthy with abundance. God, keep me from poverty. But listen, I'm one of those rare individuals who can steward wealth exceptionally well. And God, I will steward wealth to such an extent that it will manifest your presence, your character, and bring signs of the kingdom of God on earth. How many of us, when it comes to how we approach wealth, We haven't even thought. In a sense, this is a temptation too large for me. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, says I can't handle it. Jason Freeman of Evergreen says, God, bring it on. Let's be honest, right? We're in church. And so I wonder, and I wonder, I wonder, and I was talking in the first service, I wonder if my, the reason that we think it's okay, the reason that we don't struggle with that is because of the depth of relationship that Paul had with God the depth of relationship Solomon had with God, went so deep that it exposed the idols of their heart. Their relationship went so deep that, see, I haven't gone to the depths that I'm really worried about the culture in which I swim. The hardest thing to be in a culture is prophetic. Now, let me explain what that means. A prophet is someone like Martin Luther King. A prophet is someone that sees a problem and addresses a problem, even though it's going to cost them, in a sense, everything. Prophets are those that fight against slavery before Abraham Lincoln ever shows up. Prophets are those that fight 
against poverty in our day today or fight for the immigrant or fight for the one that is alone, the, the loner, the refuge, the person that's cast off, fights for them even though there's no accolade. It's very difficult to be prophetic because see, someone that's prophetic, they have to understand the idols, the gods of their culture. And in our culture, the one thing I've never heard, and I'm saying never so you can break this trend, I've never had someone come to my office and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with greed. Because, see, you know when you commit adultery, I would hope. You know when you commit adultery. There's a sense in which you know when you lie. Greed is subversive. Greed is deceptive. Greed is the things of the heart because the benefits of it are good. Comfort, success. I mean, so often money is not an idol. It's, it's what money communicates about us. I know for me, money has always been security. I don't have to have fancy stuff. I really don't. I like it. I like clean environments. But the big thing for me is to know that I'm secure. Well, I kind of listen to the words of Jim Carrey and say, you realize that you're floating around on a rock, traveling at so many, what, thousands of miles around a burning ball of fire, and you think a few dollars in your bank account keeps you safe? How, how foolish do we get where we get to a point where the things that we have, the material things that we have, we associate to, to them things like power, comfort, control. And yet none of those things can stop the bad things from life and coming. And I wonder how often those things replace God in our life to the extent we don't even see our discontent. Is it possible to say that? This is a topic that we have a hard time tapping into because the water we're drinking, the Kool-Aid we're in, is discontentment itself. And therefore, the only way to truly see it is to see God. So let's go there. Can we go there? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is filled with his glory. When I stand in the presence of God, what are the things that I'm going to be ashamed of? Now, I'm not ashamed in the sense that those things are identified with my character because I'm a child of God. There's going to be confidence in his presence. But there is going to be in heaven, in his presence, a sense of, oh, man, why did I hold on to this? Why was this so important? I think it's only when the depth and the presence of God shows up in our life that we start to see our own discontentment. Does that make sense? And here's the problem, church. The rhythms of your life are keeping you from seeing God to that depth. And what I mean is it's the comfort. It's not just coffee. It's a certain kind of coffee. It's not a phone anymore. It's a certain kind of phone. The depths to which we, we take care of ourselves, those rhythms, and think of this. Think of the technology in life and how that sets the way you spend your time. What do you grab first thing in the morning? What do you listen to? What do you feel like you need to turn on? All of those things that we go to are keeping us from seeing God, and therefore we're, it's keeping us from seeing our condition, which means here's the first challenge. What can you shut off? I do this every January. In January, I do a media fast. If you've never done that for 30 days, wow. You will not realize the detox you go through when you just shut it off. What can we shut off? Because, see, those things are putting rhythms in your life, and those rhythms are driving your heart, your contentment, and what you worship. And when you shut it off, 
And when you feel that desire to pick up the phone or turn that thing on and you turn to Christ, you're saying, God, you're sufficient. I don't feel like it right now. I don't like my feeling, but I know you're enough. Because here's the secret. Ready for this? It's in verse 13. And he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Meaning, contentment is only possible through God's strength. This isn't about a football verse. I know it's been applied to football. It's been applied to everything. I can do all, right? They got in the helmet, the hat. That's great. Listen, that's, that's true in a different way. But Paul is saying contentment, it's only found through God's strength. Meaning it's only found is I see him. And in seeing him, I see myself. And in seeing myself, I realize I am poor in spirit. And nothing in this world will satisfy. You know, every morning when I walk my kids to school, we go through these questions. And one of the passages that the Lord, whatever reason, it wasn't because I'm a great dad. One of the, the Lord just put this passage in my heart, I think it's Psalm 72. Whom have I? Every morning we walk and we say, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. For me, that's an aspiration. Nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. You are enough. What Paul is describing is he's going through challenges, but also as he's dealing with plenty, he's saying, you're enough. Our, our contentment has a name. And realize in, in the first century when Paul's writing, there was this philosophy. It's called Stoicism. It's still alive today. But Stoicism, the Stoics, uh, Seneca and uh, Socrates, they looked at the Greek and the Roman society, and they looked at Rome and the opulence of Rome, right? All those amazing buildings, the architecture, all that stuff, all the artwork, the music. They looked at it, and the Stoics fought against the opulence and the luxury of society. And this word contentment that Paul uses comes out of Stoic philosophy, and it means to be self-sufficient. So, so listen to me on this, and we're going to close. Paul's saying, he's using a, a Greek term that means to be self-sufficient, but he's turning it upside down. Because, see, the Stoics thought the number one virtue in all of life was contentment. Now, the way they saw that was by shutting off your desires, by shutting off ambition. God doesn't shut off ambition. God wants you, listen, be ambitious. He has given you a drive. He has given you talents. Exceed, but do it in a way that you're not worshiping your success. You're allowing your success to point others to Christ. You see the difference? That's a slippery road. He, all of the desires, see the Stoics, what they would do is say, hey, stop going to work, stop, don't buy a house, don't get, they would shut that stuff up, kind of like a hipster today would shut that stuff off in our culture. That's what the Stoics would do. Paul says, no, those desires are not wrong. They're directed towards the wrong thing. And the contentment that God wants for us is the end result is not the money, it's not the wealth, it's not the success, it's doing it in a way that captures the character of God. That in Christ. He's enough. And so I wonder for us, have we, first of all, have we tasted it? Maybe we've tasted it in times of, of weakness, but in times of plenty, what would that look like? There's a story that I heard this week about, actually recent, it was 1990, which seems recent to me. And it was in 1990, there's this guy that went up and robbed a bank in Ottawa. And he had this old... Um, Colt revolver, 45 caliber, whatever that means. And it was, he had this old Colt revolver, and he'd had it for a long time. It was passed down from his parents, and he had this old revolver, and he took it, and he robbed a bank, and he walked out with $6,500. And within two weeks, he was, he was captured. He went to jail for 10 years. Now, his revolver went to a museum. 
because his revolver was an antique made in 1918 and was worth $150,000. He got $6,500. I think in many ways that's the Christian life. We don't know what we have. And we haven't even begun to really taste it. Paul says, this is my drive in life. I want to know Christ. And I think, Paul, you already know him. No, no, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So somehow, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul's question was not, hey, is this right or wrong? His question was, will this get more of God in my life or will this cause me to experience less? When it comes to contentment, Paul's just saying Christ is enough. His grace is sufficient and his power is perfected in weakness. But we have to know who we are. Because when you go through challenge, you go through plenty, you've got to recognize you've been adopted and purchased by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The glory that one day is going to cover the earth, do you realize this? And when it covers the earth, everything wrong is going to be made right. All hunger is going to disappear. All disease is going to fall away. That glory that when it shows up, it's going to be like the waters covering the sea. When it shows up, everything's going to be healed. Well, that power is at work within you right now. What are we suppressing it with? There is a level of joy that the scripture says if we untap, it's greater than the mind can imagine. That's the direction God wants us to go. Hey, and as we do that this week, maybe we need to start setting some new rhythms, turning some things off so we allow God's presence and his desires for us to be first. And we need to do that together. Listen, I'm preaching to myself. I told you I'm a hypocrite. I am not a content person. But this week together as we pursue that, let us point one another towards Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that your grace, you tell me, is sufficient. And Lord, I know it's sufficient when I'm, when I'm sad. I know it's sufficient when I'm anxious. I think I've applied it. But Father, sometimes I fail to worship you when I'm happy. I fail to worship you when I'm experiencing pleasure in life, comfort, success. Father, those are the moments where Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it again, rejoice. That Father, our experience of life, both in the hardships and the good times, it's not an end in itself. It's to point us towards you and to point others towards you. And so Father, I pray for us today that as as all of us in different places in life with different experiences, we have worked hard, and yet you are the giver of every good gift. So first, Father, would we just simply acknowledge that? Father, would we acknowledge your generosity, that Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor, so that in his poverty, you who were once poor may become rich. Spiritually, Father, we abound with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is nothing you have withheld from us. And so, Father, this week, may we, in that space of seeking to know you, may we begin to uncover a deeper level of satisfaction in you. And, Father, may that satisfaction lead others to see, not just that there's something different, we're going to have our own brokenness, but there's something we love and something we're passionate about that can bring hope and joy to others. Father, guide us in this truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Again, the communion tables are open. If you're allowed to come and just take communion, please feel free. <clears throat> so, Lord, I need.
sing that again. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Lord, I come. Lord, I come, and I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Let's sing that again. Lord, I come. Lord, I come and I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Hey. Without you, hey, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh, God, how I need you. Let's see, not get in, Lord, I come, Lord, I come. I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Father, we thank you as we go that he who was rich, our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ, became poor so that in his poverty, we who were poor might become rich. Father, show us the magnitude of the gifts that we have already been given simply by confessing the name of Jesus Christ and declaring that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Now enable us, Lord, in this life to walk in rhythms that put you first and find that you're sufficient for every need. Thank you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. It's good to see you.